Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Welcome, everybody. I'm John Haig. I'm the co-director of the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government. Uh, with Larry Summers, um, and we have our regularly scheduled Thursday seminars. Um, we are extremely fortunate today. Uh, we have Bill Overholt with us. Uh, the title is Will Xi Jinping Be Successful? Um, and I want to give you just a little bit of background about, about Bill. Bill is a senior fellow, senior research fellow um, within the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government, but he's been affiliated with Harvard for a very long time. He's been over at the Asia Center. Um, a little bit of his background, um, he was uh, in 2013 to 15, served as president of the Fung Global Institute in Hong Kong. Um, he's been 16 years doing national security and corporate strategy research at uh, think tanks and 21 years uh, working in investment banking. So he has an interesting blend of private sector and public sector uh, experiences. Um, he held the Asia Policy Distinguished Research Chair at RAND um, uh, in California, Director of the Center for Asia um, uh, Pacific Policy. Um, he published uh, nine books. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a flavor, the first is China's Crisis of, that I mentioned China's Crisis of Success, which is um, his most recent 2018. Um, he wrote The Emergence of a New Global Monetary System. He wrote Asia, America, and the Transformation of Geopolitics. He wrote The Rise of China, um, and a book on strategic planning and forecasting. So pretty broad-based re uh, research and activity. Uh, he happens to be one of ours, so he has a BA from Harvard, um, which we appreciate. And then he deserted us and went to our um, competitor and has a MA and a PhD from Yale. Um, but we don't hold that against him. Um, and then there are, some, there are some really interesting things about Bill's background that if you ever get a chance to talk with him, um, my description to him, we were talking yesterday a little bit, my description was he is the very sophisticated version of Forrest Gump. He seems to be in a lot of the right places at the right time. Um, and so he was in the Philippines at various times doing work. Uh, during the Aquino period, uh, the Marcos and Aquino period. Uh, he was in Burma doing some work um, and had some experiences with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and, and her cousin. Um, and uh, I'll leave that to him to talk about. But it's just a very interesting, very eclectic background. Um, and we're fortunate to have him here today to speak about uh, Xi Jinping. So I'll turn it over to Bill. Thanks, John. Uh, delighted to be here. Uh, every uh, every year, a uh, few graduate students come to me and say, "How can I have a, a career like yours?" I've sort of been all over the place, and I say, uh, uh, "Be careful what you wish for." When I was a sophomore here. Some of EDMN's troops in Uganda set up a firing squad and put me in front of it. 
when I was a junior writing my senior thesis in the Philippines, the uh, communist guerrillas uh, uh, tried to uh, kill me. And I had, uh, I had decades like that. It's been a pleasure to be here at Harvard uh, for a decade, uh, nobody wanting to kill me except my ex-girlfriends. I want to offer you a a way of understanding China and a very different way of of viewing its current leadership from what we usually read. China is a latecomer in a group of Asian miracle economies experiences uh, many of the same ups and downs as South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore. Uh, And now it faces a turning point shared by all the Asian miracle economies that I call a crisis of success. These crises of success are caused by complexity. You start with fairly simple economy and simplified politics and uh, economic success creates an incredibly differentiated society. And you cannot manage that complex economy out of the president's office the way you can uh, an economy of landlords, peasants, road builders, and cheap socks manufacturers. Uh, And likewise, uh, uh, politics becomes very complicated. Uh, A crisis of success is a moment in the development of a business or a country uh, where complexity forces an organizational transformation. Uh, Think of an entrepreneur who invents a really cool widget, and that business just takes off. It's managed by the the entrepreneur personally with an entourage. And then if you're a really successful entrepreneur or really successful Asian miracle economy, you suddenly hit a point where in the case of the entrepreneur, you need more capital. You got a list on the stock exchange. You got to have really Uh, professional accounting and human resources. You have to have a board of directors and a public rule book. And uh, you either make it through that Elon Musk moment or you don't. Uh, Xi Jinping's job is to manage China's Elon Musk moment. For countries, these crises of success share certain characteristics. Uh, Like South Korea and Taiwan in the 1980s, China finds itself over leveraged, threatened by debt, bubbles, and bankruptcies. The big companies find themselves heavily indebted and unprofitable. (coughs) Politics also grows more complex. You have a lot more demonstrations, you have huge interest groups trying to take control of certain areas of policy. (coughs) How has China's crisis of success emerged? Let's start back with Zhu Rangji, 
who was in charge of the economy from 1994 to 2003. Uh, he was the ultimate market reformer. In his desperate effort to save the banks and the big companies from collapse, he had to move 45 million manufacturing workers into service jobs. Uh, remember what happened to this country when we moved three million people out of manufacturing jobs? Uh, he decided to cut the Chinese government in half. Uh, and at the top levels, he largely succeeded. Can you imagine if Ronald Reagan had stood up and said, I'm going to cut the US government in half? The, the reaction would have been overwhelming. Uh, it's a lot harder to cut the Chinese government in half. Um, this was enormously stressful. Initially, the people accepted the social stress because they were afraid the place was going to collapse. But with success, by 2001, 2002, uh, Chinese society was just stressed out. People were saying, we're just not going to take it anymore. Uh, and so you got a new leadership under Hu Jintao, where the slogan was harmonious society. Harmonious society had deep philosophical underpinnings, but in practice it meant no more Jurongji market reforms. The government and party nearly doubled under under who after Jurongji had tried to cut it in half. Who was a very weak leader. He was personally crippled by diabetes. His team of nine Politburo Standing Committee members worked by majority vote. Uh, we have an institution that has nine senior people that works by majority vote called the Supreme Court. Uh, very judicious, not very fast. Uh, that was Hu Jintao's experience. And the older leaders kept interfering and blocking even the, the policies that Hu Jintao tried to pursue. Economic and political reform largely stopped. Uh, they found that ministers weren't listening to the prime minister. Local governments weren't listening to the center. Uh, corruption went through the roof. Uh, the military was uh, obsessively focused with making money for the top generals, uh, not with learning how to shoot straight. Demonstrations increased from 20,000 per year to 180,000 per year before they stopped publishing the statistics. Uh, powerful interest groups were asserting authority over policy. Uh, wh what do I mean by powerful interest group? Well, the petroleum faction controlled the flow of energy resources through China. Now, that's hundreds of billions of dollars. And there was a market price, an official price, which they arbitraged and put a lot of the difference in their pockets. The head of the p petroleum faction, uh, faction uh, Zhou Yangkong, was one of the nine members of the leadership, the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, and he happened to be China's chief 
of security. That's a strong interest group. That makes, that makes the NRA look like a little puppy dog. Uh, this combination of economic and political issues is China's crisis of success. The leaders had to restart economic reform and they had to reassert central authority. On economics, they worked with the World Bank, with uh, Nobel Prize winners like Mike Spence, uh, with an amazing range of talent <coughs> to develop a plan based on market allocation of resources. If the economy is too, too complicated to manage from uh, from an office in the central city, you let the market make a lot of the decisions. It made a lot of sense. Uh, seldom in world history has an economic plan been so carefully prepared. Politically, they saw the challenges as requiring drastic centralization. So instead of having nine members in the leadership, they had seven. And they took the extremes of opinion and left them out so it would be easier to reach consensus. They decided the new guy would get immediate control of the military, whereas Hu Jintao had to wait two years. They created a National Security Council to coordinate the military and foreign policy the first time, and a bunch of what they call small leading groups to take charge of everything from uh, financial reform to uh, Taiwan policy to military reform. They put one guy in charge of all those. This is real centralization. Hey, these were consensus decisions, separate from the choice of Xi Jinping as the guy who was going to get uh, these roles. Immediately, the problems began. If the market was going to allocate resources, then uh, political and, and uh, state enterprise groups were not uh, party groups. Uh, and they were unhappy about that. If, uh, if the market were put in charge, then the state enterprises would be squeezed, and that meant the banks would be squeezed. because. The state enterprises can only pay back the banks through their special privileges. They, they don't earn enough to make their cost of capital. Uh, military reforms added the military to groups that were pushing back. Above all, the reform process uh, put local governments in a terrible squeeze. Uh, in short, their reform plan threatened the positions of every powerful interest group in China. The most dangerous position any leader can put himself in is to take on every powerful group at the same time. Somebody like Ataturk is very careful to have a coalition target this group, change the coalition, target another group. That's not the way it's being done in China. But Xi Jinping had a hammer to employ against folks who stood in his way. 
And that was the anti-corruption campaign. Not surprisingly, the first uh, tiger brought down was Zhou Yangkang, the head of the petroleum faction, followed by very senior <coughs> military leaders. But the broad application of the anti-corruption campaign also targeted every major power group in China. So Xi Jinping had doubled down on the political risk of getting everybody on the other side. Uh, in this context, Xi Jinping's team came to power thinking there was a coup plot underway. And the threat to so many power groups led to spectacular infighting. One top executive told me, Bill, the atmosphere in Beijing is you die or I die. Uh, that's not the image we get on TV of the perfectly coiffed leader with all the identically clothed uh, uh, officials sitting behind. Uh, the reality uh, was a really tough political struggle. Adding injury to injury, the anti-corruption campaign scared everybody, especially the people who were supposed to implement reform. If I'm a reformer and you're the person in charge of what's being reformed, you're going to say, he's corrupt. And in the Chinese context, I probably am, so I feel very vulnerable. So my reaction as, a, as an official is like a student that hasn't done his homework, hide in the back row and hope nobody sees me. So reform didn't happen very much. Because of this political warfare, uh, Xi Jinping's first term was focused on subduing rivals. And that he did with spectacular success. All the rivals were eliminated. And the second term is supposed to be the term when reform gets done. And that, that started about a year ago. Uh, thinking about that and thinking about the opposition, uh, a lot of top officials started worrying, well, maybe, maybe we'll do these reforms and the next guy will roll them all back like uh, Trump rolling back everything Obama did. And maybe it'll be worse than that. Maybe there will be unpleasant reprisals against uh, people who pushed the, these reforms. So I thought, well, we, we better allow the possibility of a, of a third term. How, how is reform actually doing? Well. Reform involves a lot of tough decisions. And in every case where I've had to, to choose, I'm, I'm going to have my cake or I'm going to eat it, the choice has been, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. Uh, they had a choice, fast reform and slow growth, or fast growth and slow reform. They said, we're going to have fast reform and we're going to have fast growth. Uh, the reality has been slow reform. 
They've said they'll move to market allocation of resources, but they're providing $1.7 trillion of subsidies to the big state enterprises. They've said they'll marketize the state enterprises, but in every state and private enterprise, they're trying to make sure that the party committee inside the enterprise has final say on all strategic business decisions. So you have a political figure second-guessing all strategic business decisions. I've said we'll create a level playing field, but they've, they've emphasized uh, consolidating national champions and, and uh, making sure that uh, uh, things like competition policy only apply uh, to foreign enterprises, not to the state enterprises. <coughs> They've acknowledged that they need public input about corruption problems and environmental problems, uh, but they're cracking down on almost every kind of public complaint. This determination to have the cake and eat it too is not Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping kind of decision making. It's much more Theresa May. <laughs> but the, uh, this decision isn't completely indecisive. In every area where the choice is market reform and efficiency or political control, the emphasis comes down on political control. So under Mao Zedong, it was politics in command. Under Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin, it was economics in command. Under Hu Jintao, it was patronage in, com in command. Uh, under Xi Jinping, it's politics mostly in command. And that has ominous implications for the economy. Recognition of this strategic indecision illuminates the role of Xi Jinping. Our media and, and many specialists describe Xi Jinping as the omnipotent president for life, as China's Putin. That's almost the exact opposite of reality. Uh, she is very powerful. He did eliminate his adversaries. He has a page-long list of titles and roles. He's enshrined in the Constitution. He's promoting movies and speeches that attribute China's successes uh, uh, to him and his father, not so much to Deng Xiaoping. But the important test of a leader is, uh, can he implement the agreed policy goals. She is hardly all-powerful in that dimension. He faces universal pushback, and his personal political priorities have overridden the economic tasks he was assigned. Therefore, he had limited economic success. She is not China's Putin. She is a creature of the Chinese Communist power, uh, Party. He's an executive 
given a job and a set of tasks to do, and he's accountable to the leadership of the party. Putin's situation is the exact opposite. Putin's party is a creature of Putin. It exists solely to make Putin more powerful and richer. Uh, that difference is entirely in China's favor, but it's not a description of the omnipotent president for life. The sober reality is that Xi Jinping has a job to do, and he's not doing it. These consequences take a long time to ramify. Uh, Jeff Immelt uh, presided over the decline of GE for 18 years, and, and China's a lot more complicated than GE. Uh, but the consequences do happen. Competent, confident executives do not accumulate all possible roles. Imagine the CEO of a really big enterprise <coughs> who makes himself the operating director of every, every operating division. Uh, that wouldn't express competence and confidence. That would express fear of delegating. Uh, in contrast with this accumulation of roles, Deng Xiaoping governed China for years with one title, Honorary Chairman of the Chinese Bridge Players Society. At 80 years old, he gave a speech, and a few years later, a billion people were living different lives. That's real authority. Now I want to offer you two complementary perspectives. On the one hand, China faces very serious political problems. On the other hand, it's not facing some kind of great revolution. Uh, let me start with the first. The lesson of the earlier Asian miracles is that the pressures of political complexity are inexorable. Uh, the current Chinese administration has chosen Park Chung-hee's strategy of sitting on the boiling political kettle and hoping the lid doesn't blow off. The result is a vicious circle of repression, pushback, more repression, more pushback. Beneath the surface, the political tides are shifting. Groups that strongly supported the administration five years ago are becoming alienated. Five years ago, China was one of the few emerging countries where academics supported the government. They didn't like aspects of repression, but their view was, look at what this party and this government have done for the Chinese people. It's wonderful. So some problems with repression, small, small price to pay. No more. China's professionals, journalists, lawyers, academics, the leading edge of society, today feel helpless but alienated. Of decisive importance is the business community. State enterprise leaders have lost about half their compensation. Uh, 
they're not happy about that. But the important sector is the, the private business sector. Virtually all job growth and uh, economic growth come from China's private sector. Private sector investment has fallen by two-thirds. Every private company is vulnerable to the local party secretary who is still the arbiter of social equity. And so he calls up and says, um, I've got a great new project downtown. It's going to do a lot for the city. Uh, I need your million dollars by next Tuesday. Or usually unsaid, you're out of business. That causes a lot of resentment that doesn't appear in public. Um, now the government is worried about leverage of the whole society, and it's, it's uh, worried about corruption. So the local government is being told, uh, you, you, you're not going to get the kind of resources you've been getting. And uh, those innovative financial practices that have kept you funded, uh, those aren't allowed anymore. Now, the local governments in China have outsized responsibility for, for social issues and undersized revenues. So they're feeling very squeezed. Now, what's going to happen? Now it's going to be... I've got three projects downtown, and I need three contributions. And, and uh, that's going to take a very serious toll. Add together the discontents of modern professions, local governments, powerful central party and, and government groups, state business, local business, and the most salient religious groups, and you have a tidal shift. The tides shift very gradually, but they shift. Western media and politicians look at all of Xi Jinping's titles. And, uh, they see a sta stable dictator for life. It's not what the Chinese people see. In all this repression, they see fear. Fear is motivator of all this repression. And I think, uh-oh, I better get my kids and my money out of China. It's been years since I've met an upper-class or middle-class family in China that didn't want to get its, its money out. Uh, there are probably some people in the audience here who are beneficiaries of that. Uh, this is the pressure for capital flight has created a necessity for powerful capital controls, and that's completely destroyed the, uh, the move to make uh, the Chinese currency a major international currency. Uh, consistently, the, the politics undermines <coughs> the, the economics. That's one side. Now I want to talk about system strength. The shift does not make China vulnerable to some kind of great revolution. The fundamentals of the governance system created by China's Communist Party are very sound, just like the Leninist predecessors in Taiwan. 
<coughs> South Korea. But to understand this, one has to discard an awful lot of modern social science, uh, Western social science uh, thinking about how things actually work. Uh, nothing highlights the, the malign influence of <clears throat> ideology and methodological uh, fetishism in uh, Western scholarship like looking at the realities of China. Start with environmental issues. It was long a shibboleth of Western academic studies of China's environmental problems that because of the iniquitous Chinese communist system, uh, China had the worst pollution problems in the world. On the contrary, when those studies were being published, the effect of air pollution on human health in India was already 11 times worse than in China. Uh, Chinese cities don't make the, the list of the top 100 most polluted cities in the world. Like London in 1950 and Japan in 1970, China just had to get to a certain threshold where people's basic needs were assured uh, and when an, an environmental uh, issues reached a point where, was, hey, we've got to do something about this. Beijing's pollu air pollution, nothing like London in the 1950s. One day, coal dust in the air in London killed 2,000 healthy people. Doesn't happen in China. Uh, um, the reality is pretty much the opposite. Uh, today, uh, China spends more on environmental alleviation than the United States or all of Europe. It's the leader in every form of the world leader in every form of green energy. They're digging out of a very deep hole, but they are really digging. Now, turn to economics. The leading development economists of our day, Asimoglu and Robinson, have shown persuasively that uh, sustained economic development requires an inclusive society. And they make Frequently, frequent derogatory comments about China because China is not politically inclusive. The assumption is that political inclusiveness and economic inclusiveness are the same. Uh, at this level of development, the exact opposite is the truth. In fact, these Asian miracle economies and their authoritarian periods specialize in cre creating inclusive economies. How do they do that? Well, they all start with a, taking the basic asset of what was then a peasant society, land, and having a great land reform. So everybody gets a piece of the action. And then they provide universal basic education. So everybody gets a chance. Something places like India have proven incapable so far of doing. And then they build infrastructure, very good infrastructure, to attract labor-intensive industry. And that labor-intensive industry, textiles, garments, computer assembly, radios, TVs, uh, pulls everybody into the modern economy. 
for comparison, China builds about as many good roads in six months as India has built since independence in 1947. The most prominent beneficiaries of this labor-intensive industry is women, a particularly repressed group in traditional Chinese society. In most traditional agricultural societies, family survival can depend on muscle power. And that means a preference for boys over girls. That's not just China, it's everywhere, almost everywhere. In modern uh, industry, making clothes, assembling computers, companies don't want boys. They want women. So you go to a typical factory and got 11 Taiwanese guys running the factory and 8,000 Chinese women. That's still unfair that it's 11 Taiwanese guys running the place, but the key social fact for China is those 8,000 Chinese women. Women travel 500, 1,000, 1,500 miles to get away from their villages and into these jobs. They get out from under the thumbs of their brothers and their fathers. They are the ones who are exposed to the modern world. They are the ones who develop a nest egg that can be used for a down payment on a home back in the village. I'll give you one indicator of the shift. In the old days, women had to provide a dowry. Today, guys, if you can't provide an apartment, she will not date you. That's a male dowry. Still a lot of gender unfairness in China, but uh, a fundamental shift. Then these Asian miracle economies promote uh, widespread home ownership. Highest rate of home ownership in the world is Singapore, 90%. Second highest is China, 85%. We Americans run about 64%. The number of Chinese families that own a home is about twice the number of Indian families that have access to a toilet. Now, modern Western economic theory says India is inclusive and China isn't. I, I, I leave it up to you. And then all these countries have a an incredible property price inflation so that all these homes become more valuable. The average Chinese, we just heard a lecture at the Fairbanks Center yesterday, the average poor Chinese family has assets of 238,000 RMB. I'll call that $45,000. Uh, I haven't got the numbers for the US, but I think the numbers for the US are a lot lower. Um, so, what does all this mean? For the economy, first, growth, while still relatively high in world terms, has been declining for years, and it will continue to decline. Actual growth is a lot less than published growth. Uh, growth is being sustained by unproductive investment, and that will, and paid for by rapidly increasing debt. Uh, Political officials are being given final say 
over strategic business decisions in all companies. Uh, China won't have a great financial crisis. It's going to have more and more sand in the gears. Uh, slower, slower, slower. The emphasis on subsidies and protections for the big companies is so reminiscent of Japan. Uh, this is how you slide in, that re you reduce competition and, and slide into stagnation. And China is taking a turn in the direction of inward. Uh, again, uh, a comparison was to Japan, I think, is crucial. In 1965, Japan's mentality was like China's up until a few years ago. Uh, we're going to seek out best practice everywhere in the world and bring it back. We're going to be super globalizers. And then 1975, the mentality was our superior growth is due to our superior Japanese cultural traditions, and we're gonna we're gonna keep our students home, and we're gonna we're gonna take care of our own big companies, uh, at the, not not just at the expense of foreigners, but the expense of up and coming local companies. This combination of uh, focus on protecting big companies and turning away from globalization. Is, is the core of, of Japanese stagnation. A couple indicators. Well, China's economy is, is still much more open and competitive than Japan's. We always have to remember that. Uh, the shift is quite dramatic. Uh, five years ago, if a Chinese official or academic sp spent some time at Harvard, that was almost an automatic guarantee of rapid promotion and good, good treatment. Now it's a guarantee of questions about loyalty. Uh, Xi Jinping speaks eloquently about reform and opening, but the reality is backsliding and closing. In the Cultural Revolution, there was a phrase for this. It's called waving the red flag to defeat the red flag. Um, this risks Japanese-style stagnation. This is what Xi Jinping was hired to prevent. It's the most likely result of his policies so far. Uh, finally, I'll close with this. China faces a very fundamental political problem, one that's not much mentioned in Western commentary. And that's a shift from a vanguard party to an interest group. China's early reformers took extraordinary political risks to make the economy work. When Deng Xiaoping took power, the core of communist power was the ability through the communes to control the life of every person. Most people were peasants. The communes gave, gave the leaders control over your job, where that job was, who you married. 
what you wore, what kind of haircut you had, everything. But Deng Xiaoping saw in, in Anhui province, some of the peasants started taking back the land, uh, completely against communist policy. Uh, but Deng Xiaoping saw hey, um, local economies starting to grow very fast, and the peasants seemed pretty happy. Uh, maybe we should not just tolerate this, maybe we should spread it everywhere. When we look back through an economic lens, that seems like the most obvious decision imaginable. If you stand in, in Deng Xiaoping's shoes and look forward, that was the most risky political decision he could possibly take. And later, Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji did the same thing in the cities. Huge political risk in order to deliver benefits to the people. Uh, that kind of behavior taking huge risks in order to deliver benefits, hoping that those benefits will then make you popular and consolidate your power. That's what a vanguard party does. What would be the counterparts today? The counterparts would be for the party to step back from direct control of the state enterprises, for the party to step back from direct control of the courts. The economic benefits and the sense of justice would be enormously good for the population. But today the emphasis is control of every lever of power, however small. That transforms the Communist Party from a vanguard party into an interest group. Consciousness that the parties claim to be a, a vanguard this claim to become a vanguard has become hollow will spread very gradually. But it makes Xi Jinping the Mitch McConnell of the Communist Party. There are consequences eventually. So what does this all mean for the future? China does not risk sudden financial or political collapse. Its problem is a gradual accumulation of political and economic sand in the gears. Resistance to, to policies that undermine the economy and undermine political legitimacy is gathering force very gradually. Almost nobody acts because almost everybody is afraid. But famous professors do speak out knowing they'll lose their jobs. And kids at Beida go and help work, workers organize for better wages, knowing that they'll be put in jail. They call, they call themselves Marxist societies when they, they do this. Uh, local officials, in one case, uh, ignored direct orders from Xi Jinping six times in a row. Uh, when, told them to stop uh, uh, illegal environmental damaging uh, activities in a, in a national reserve. Uh, millions of families quietly tried to get their kids and their money uh, out of China. The Chinese society remind, today reminds me a little bit of the super saturated liquids we all studied in 
high school chemistry. Uh, you hold up the glass and it looks clear, but you go tap, 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 and a lot of white stuff precipitates out. Uh, I don't know when the tap, tap, tap will come. I don't know what will precipitate out. What I can predict is that things will get a lot better or they get a lot worse. They can't remain the same. Let me stop there and see if I've provoked any comments or questions. <laughs> Feel to free to comment as well as questions. Frightened about the time, but, but the vision of Belt and Road is a brilliant vision. It's essentially a constructive theft of U.S. intellectual property. How did the U.S. win the Cold War? It created a network of development, first rebuilding Japan and Western Europe, and then creating a network tied in the rest of the world, created a common prosperity for us and for a lot of other people. The core of that was a big bank that in, in invested in infrastructure, the World Bank, and some institutions that created common standards. And, and that's, we lost that after the Cold War. Our aid institutions and our diplomacy didn't have any interest groups behind them. The military did. So now our, our foreign policy, having won the Cold War with essentially an economic strategy, our, our political scientists and our military officers who write the history forget that. We had a military standoff. We needed a strong military. But that wasn't what won. What won was an economic strategy. The Soviet Union went bust. The Chinese understand how successful that strategy was. And they're doing something that's Bretton Woods with Chinese characteristics. And the Chinese characteristics really aren't all that different from what we tried to do. And if it worked, it would be the greatest contribution imaginable to the world economy and to our own security. Because every time, every time you develop one of these countries, you get rid of a source of, of failed state terrorism. The great success of our development efforts in the Cold War was Indonesia. Indonesia had more violent jihadis than the rest of the world combined. And it had the world's third largest communist party. And claimed, by the way, all of Southeast Asia. And we persuaded them to give up the claims to all of Southeast Asia. And the so-called Berkeley Mafia, because so many of the ministers came from Berkeley, and the Harvard Institute of International Development, helped them create policies that stabilized the country. Those jihadis were just bought off. Indonesia is where it is today because of a 
Bretton Woods Belt and Road type policy. Uh, a current version of that is Bangladesh. When Bangladesh was created, uh, Kissinger and everybody else back around 1970 knew this was going to be a catastrophe. It was going to be a giant jungle <coughs> Somalia. And it should be spewing revolutionary jihadis all over the world. But instead, the textile and garment industry spilled over from China. They moved from China, but almost all the investment was American. The bulk of the investment. And this Chinese-American collaboration stabilized the country. We, we don't have a place that could be 10 series because of this joint vision. Ethiopia recently has been the fastest growing country. When I worked with Ethiopia, they had six violently conflicting Marxist parties and one of the nastiest famines in modern history. Now, now they've been the, the world's fastest growing country. Chinese investment is a big part of that. So the vision is right. The implementation so far is pretty awful. If I were in Washington, and I, I will always be politically unacceptable in Washington, so that's a con <laughs> contrarian kind of idea, I would try to mount a parallel effort to Belt and Road. I would endorse the vision. I would negotiate with the Chinese on some common standards. This is what happened with Japan. Japan had a very predatory aid policy, and we we had the same kinds of fears about Japan then that we have about China now. But we negotiated, 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 threatened, and yelled, and uh, we ended up with a parallel policy that worked quite well. So great vision, uh, bad implementation, uh, very much the wrong U.S. response. Sorry to be so long. Sir. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Paul Shea, senior fellow in the Mosulara Mani Center. So you, you emphasize the, uh, the sort of conundrum of, of increasing scale and complexity, and that meaning that you can't really have a centralized system of kind of hair in the same way. Solution to that in the economic sphere is to rely more and more on market mechanisms, which China seems to have done to a large extent. In the political sphere, <coughs> normally one would think that you need to move towards some kind of, you know, contestable political system where you have rule of law and very clear kind of rules of the game. It seems that China has moved in the opposite direction in that dimension. Could you talk a little bit about what you see as the longer term prognosis for how the political system is going to evolve? And do the Chinese leaders, and I'm very struck by the fact that you emphasize they rather than he, Xi Jinping, what the game plan is behind closed doors for the political leaders in China, that long-term uh, development of their political system that then will somehow dovetail nicely with the economic uh, successes of the Well, the, the parallel to the economic sphere would be some kind of system that made a lot of political decisions relatively automatic and was seen as legitimate. Our solution to that is our style of elections and the rule of law. Uh, 
I don't argue that China has to accept our kind of democracy because uh, I want to leave I want to leave the <coughs> space open uh, for China to think through its problems on its own. Uh, certainly, in the economic sphere, that's been very important. Uh, not to subject them to all the shibboleths of how we think things should should be done. But so far, nobody's invented another system that does that very well. In China, there are leaders top intellectual leaders, including uh, at the best universities, uh, people who s still have their jobs, and at very high political levels that define this problem very precisely uh, and very eloquently. Uh, they do it pretty privately these days. Uh, when Hu Jintao was president of the Central Party School, before he became president of the country, the Central Party School worked very hard on three alternative scenarios for democratization. Uh, the one was kind of a Taiwan scenario, one was kind of a Japan scenario, uh, and there was a somewhat more Leninist scenario. Um, so I, I think the problem is, is uh, reasonably well understood. Uh, but I think, I think you have an elite uh, fearful of its role, uh, trying to hang on the edge of the cliff uh, and, and acting in desperation um, one doesn't it might get very much worse and then and then get very much better. Uh, uh, but there is this awareness of the problem. They define it in ways that sound strange to Western ears, like we need to find a better way to connect the party to the people. Uh, but it's the, it's the problem, same problem the West has faced. Uh, one of the things that a lot of our commentary doesn't take note of is that generational change in China is very fast. Because the social change has been so fast, every 10 years you've got an entirely different group. And up to now, you had administrations that had 10 years, and then a very different group would come in. Juranji uh, addressed the problems of a of a state economy that that his uh, his predecessors had. Hu Jintao addressed the problem of social stress that Juranji hadn't been able to address. And Xi Jinping is supposed to address the problem of uh, potential stagnation. That <coughs> the risk for China is that this third term idea, if it happens, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on whether it will happen or not, uh, is that this generational change process, which has been very constructive for China, gets interrupted. And then 
And then, then the change could become very disruptive. But China is absolutely full of people who understand the problem, who articulate the problem, who have a whole bunch of conflicting solutions to the problem. Uh, it's not, we haven't seen the end of history. Uh, and, and they define the problem about the way I have. Malcolm McPherson from the Ash Center. Um, what about, what about the role of foreign pressure, you know, in, in pushing this change to reform? You know, one of the ideas of the Trump tariffs behind them, I understand, is to sort of get uh, China to reform, you know, open up its, uh, well, its uh, stop stealing intellectual property. Is, is that going to have any impact, or is that just uh, harden the resistance internally? I, I don't know whether everybody could hear that. The question uh, does foreign pressures, especially from from Trump, uh, tend to accelerate reforms, or does it uh, inhibit them? Um, the answer is both. Um, one professor uh, that I visited recently in China articulated it this way. He said, in the United States, the elite hates Trump and the masses love him. In China, the elites love Trump and the masses hate him. The, the elites are very concerned that Xi Jinping is moving backwards instead of forwards. Uh, and they see Trump's pressure as potentially helpful. Uh, the masses uh, have a nationalistic reaction. Uh, here's this nasty foreigner beating up on our country, and that's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, I don't think in the end it's going to be helpful, uh, partly because Trump is emphasizing the wrong things. Uh, it, all this emphasis on the, the, the balance of trade, and the balance of trade is determined by our decisions in our economy. Uh, and he's going to be happy, Trump is going to be happy if they buy a lot more, which just means our deficit is going to be with somebody else. Uh, it doesn't really go to the root of the problems. I think we're, we're probably going to see a grudging acceptance in principle of you know, more access for foreign investment. But it's going to be very the the test of the implementation, and I think there'll be a lot of local regulations that make actual implementation very difficult. I, I don't think it will change the basic balance of Xi Jinping's priorities, which is politics over economics. So, How does the current sort of massive repression of religious minorities, Muslims and the unregulated Christian churches either detract from the economic problem or help him in his um, political pursuits about the population? The religious oppression is both economically and politically unhelpful. It's just a dumb policy. Uh, in my book, China's Crisis of Success, I contrast uh, how Park Chung-hee handled the Moonies and how China handled the Falun Gong. 
the Moonies, for you, any of you who haven't studied it, there was a, a religious leader in South Korea who claimed to be, I think, a brother of Jesus Christ. And he became very influential. Uh, these societies go from having a traditional Confucian ethical system, which gets destroyed by all the troubles of the last century, to money being God, and then feeling empty. And then the emptiness is filled by Moonies or Falun Gong, uh, these ridiculous cults. Uh, Park Chung-hee in Korea just let the Moonies go. They held huge conferences in Chicago with Nobel Prize winners. My daughter's school had students who were converts to, to the Moonies, and there were people called deprogrammers who were hired. And it was much more influential than Falun Gong. And, uh, but as Korea became an educated middle class society, People became Buddhists and Christians and very conservative. Uh, and the Moonies became a conglomerate and went bust. Pretty much all they have left is the Washington Times uh, newspaper. Stomping on Falun, Juro Ji wanted to follow Park Chung-hee's policy toward Falun. Jiang Zemin insisted on stomping on them. That's made them stronger. It's spread them all over the world. And when you stomp on Christians. They think, ah, the lion's den in Roman times. and uh, That's when Christianity became strong, by standing up, and even though the lions were eating them. Uh, and the same with Islam. So this is just a counterproductive policy in every respect. If they just let it alone, religions tend to be in, in middle class educated societies, religions tend to be conservative forces. Uh, huge mistake. Mm. Sir? Uh, thanks for your remarks. Please well some fellow here. Could you say something about the inter interdependencies between China and the US uh, around uh, Chinese holding of US debt? No, it's a terrible problem for China. Uh, uh, even Hillary Clinton seemed to think that when China held a lot of our debt, that, that meant they were our banker and, and, and we were dependent. Uh, it doesn't at all. Uh, if they're going to run a huge trade surplus and pile up these reserves, they have to do something with them. And they can invest them in euros and lose money. Or they can invest them in gold and lose money. Uh, they can invest them in... in uh, big Western companies, and historically they, they haven't done very well. That, or they can put them where everybody else puts their reserves, heavily in US dollars that are uh, liquid, and while they go up and down, you don't lose a tremendous amount of money over time. If they were to suddenly sell, uh, the currency might go down. Chinese, the, 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 say the currency goes down by 30%. Then the value of their reserves goes from 3 trillion to 2 trillion. A trillion here and a trillion there is a lot of money. 
uh, our risk is that our interest rates go up a little bit. Uh, so this interdependence is a, a huge problem for them. They, uh, it's their mismanagement that piled up these excessive reserves. Uh, so on the American side, I, I don't worry about that. I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about the future of the party, about, about, about the country. How much uh, a country that is now part of globalization uh, get influenced by the outside world? Uh, Belt and Road, Chinese foreign direct investments, uh, all the things you've been discussing about. How much does the, does the party take into account what the foreign media say, what think tanks or academics say, what foreign governments say, what public opinions say. Do they care at all? I mean, this is a question, of course, I'm asking to myself as well, but, um, you know, at this stage, at, at, when we, we look at this party, this system, the way it's, it's been operated, uh, it still seems they don't really mind whatever people say, but I'd like to hear you. To some extent, criticism from the rest of the world, especially from the U.S., can strengthen Xi Jinping. But the educated people of China are relatively cosmopolitan group. Uh, the next generation is much more educated and cosmopolitan than, than Xi Jinping's uh, generation. Uh, some of the people around Xi Jinping, like Lu He, a graduate of Kennedy School, uh, Wang Qishan, are among the, mo the wisest and most uh, cosmopolitan of senior officials anywhere in the world. Uh, so I, I don't think criticism of them moves them a heck of a lot, but I think the logic the arguments of, of the, the experience of these officials and, and scholars especially who been overseas, understand how the world works, uh, is very influential. Uh, and, but it, 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 it percolates up gradually and subtly. Um, if you look at the people who run China's central bank, People's Bank, for instance, these are as sophisticated and cosmopolitan as any comparable officials anywhere in the world, including ours. Uh, and they're, they're giving the kind of advice to their leadership that our officials are giving to our leadership. When the stock market takes a, a bump down in 2015, uh, Xi Jinping forgets to talk with them. He's got his own preconceptions. But then over time, people say, well, look, look at the consequences. It would have been better if we if we'd gone with the market response. 
so there's a powerful interaction with the rest of the world. Not, not, not saying the public opinion in the United States matters all that much, but, but looking at global experience. Uh, these people have spent 30 years bringing back global experience. Uh, so they, they get it. Sure. Last question. Last question, John says. Do you think we're overly focused on competition with China? Do you think there's a better U.S. approach to foreign policy with China? I do, yes. Uh, Washington's not good at nuance. There were some issues that we really needed to address with China. Intellectual property, access to the services sector. If they're going to have complete access to our manufacturing sector, which is what they do well, then we should get some access to their services sector, which is what we do well. Uh, And some of what they've done in the South China Sea is kind of reversion to the mentality of the Thucydides trap. But uh, the world's going past that. The people who win geopolitically now are the people who focus on the economy. That's the U.S. after World War II. That's Japan after World War II. That's, that's South Korea and Taiwan. Cut back their military budgets in, in Indonesia and in China. Uh, but the big, the big game geopolitically is Belt and Road. And we have enormous mutual interests. <coughs> in that development that they're trying to promote. And it's, it's quite negotiable. Uh, our center is just coming out with a book on North Korea. Uh, our, our interests and the Chinese interests overlap at least 95%. This is the greatest threat of nuclear war in the world, and our interests are perfectly aligned. Uh, so the, the, the sudden shift and it's really occurred in about a year. To China's the enemy. We just have to nail them. And every gain of China's is a loss for us. That's a military mentality. It's not appropriate to the modern world. We need to tackle these issues. Some of them involve very tough negotiations. We should be tough. But the, the common interests are just huge. And uh, it would be nice to see a politician stand up and, and balance the two. What's happened in our policy, we used to have the small left and small right in Congress. And when I was a governor of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong in the 1990s, and there was a big issue with China, we'd fly in and we'd ignore the right-wingers, and we'd fight with United States Pelosi, but she was not, she, she was not a, a major force on actual policy. We'd deal with Richard Lugar and Bill Bradley and these solid technocrats. There's some negatives, there's some positives. Let's balance them, let's go for both. Uh, now that center has completely disappeared. All we have left is Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. This is 
we still have we have some real problems with China, but we have a terrible problem with our own political system, and we we need to focus on on fixing that. Having a new Cold War mentality with China is a huge mistake. Thank you for coming.